We're in Exodus 4, it's verses 10 through 17, and this is entitled, Filling Life's Gaps. Okay, Exodus 4, starting in verse 10, says, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he would be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. When the Lord sent out the disciples through the land of Israel, how did he send them? Anybody? Two by two. Thank you. Who did the Lord send to get the donkey for him to ride on Palm Sunday? Two disciples. How many did he send to prepare for the Passover meal in the upper room? Two. Two. That's right. When the church at Antioch commissioned their missionaries, they did it according to the Lord's command. What was that command? Two. Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, it says in Acts 13. Two were selected for the work. After Paul and Barnabas split, Paul took another person named Silas with him, and Barnabas took John Mark with him. Again, two. These and a host of other examples from the Bible give us a sure indication that two is certainly better than one when setting out on a task, a journey, or a ministry. God knew in advance that Moses would feel unqualified to fill the role he's been called to. And from the end of our passage to say, today we're going to see that God already knew Aaron would join Moses. He knew it in advance. But instead of saying it at the outset, he took Moses through a methodical series of steps to allow himself to realize his own limitations and to understand where his strengths and his weaknesses lay. Through this process, Moses is readied for the great challenges ahead. Our text verse comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's verses 9 and 10. It says, There two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Are you contemplating any major changes in your life? Or do you feel called to something in some great way? I know Paul right now, he and Elaine are feeling a call for something. They're feeling that maybe there's a ministry that they should be participating in. Like them, and if so, from a biblical perspective, it would be wise to find someone to share in the challenges ahead and to work with you as you endeavor to meet that calling. First, make sure you're compatible as people especially that both are Christians who are willing to stand up for biblical precepts that you both agree on. Then make sure that your goal is jointly agreed upon, and after that, decide who will assume what role. As you're going through this process, be absolutely sure to include the Lord in the matter. Bring it to him and petition his blessing upon what you have set out to do. In this, you will have the highest probability of success. Setting the Lord first and seeking his will in any endeavor is what is recommended directly in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. As always, I have three thoughts for you. The first is I will be. This is verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 begins with these words. Then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, in beginning our look into the passage today, we see here words translated which are not always clear to the reader of the Bible. If one reads the preface to their Bible, it will normally explain these things, but the preface is almost universally left unread. And so to ensure each of you is aware of the nuances of this first verse, I want to explain them to you. If you look at the verse, most tra translations that you have in front of you, it will say, Moses said to the Lord, and Lord is all capitalized. That indicates the divine name, Yehovah, or some people call it Yahweh. In his response, however, the word is Lord, capital L, small o-r-d. That is the word Adonai. 
It's a way of speaking to Yehovah without saying his name. It's an honorific title, which means my Lord when speaking of Yehovah specifically. As you read the Bible, you may also see the word Lord, all in lowercase letters, L-O-R-D. That would be the Hebrew word Adon, which means something like master or even sir. To see all three in one passage uh, so that you understand what's going on, you can go to Judges chapter 6. And in that, you will see where Gideon at first thinks he's talking to a man. It's Jehovah speaking to him, but he thinks he's talking to a man. And so he says, Adoni, which means my Lord, human. It's small L-O-R-D. But in a few verses, after finding out he's actually speaking to Jehovah, he calls him Adonai, meaning my Lord, deity. It's a capital L, small O-R-D. Now, why is this important to know? It's because you want to know who is speaking to who, don't you? The phrase which Moses speaks to the Jehovah here is the words, be Adonai. It's a, a phrase which is filled with force. This same word, be, is used at two critical times in the book of Genesis and several other important times in the Old Testament as well. His statement here is somewhat disparaging, and yet it's somewhat supplicatory, meaning he's making a petition. In one way, he is petitioning for release, and at the same time, he's showing disapproval of his selection to accomplish the task set before him, as we see in the continuation of verse 10. I am not eloquent. In this, Moses presents his fourth difficulty concerning the words of the Lord when he was selected. His words are, Lo ish devarim anochi. No man of words am I. Whatever words he intends to speak don't come to his tongue readily. And because of this, he lacks fluency as a speaker. However, in the New Testament, Stephen, while speaking to the rulers of Israel, says that Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, one might question how one can be mighty in words and deeds and yet be no man of words. Is that a contradiction? The answer is no. Understanding Moses as a man dissolves this difficulty. He is the human author of the first five books of the Bible. It is a masterpiece of literature like none that were ever penned on the face of the planet. It shows the highest knowledge and intellect attainable. His words have been studied continuously for over 3,500 years, and yet new insights are derived from it almost daily. Along with this and included in his writings are the accounts of his life and his actions. They show a man who is driven in his convictions, tireless in his duties, and abounding in his zeal for his people and for his God. No statement less than mighty in words and deeds is fitting for this man, Moses. And yet, despite this, his elocution was lacking in eloquence. Now, as a squiggle for your brain, the only other person in the Bible who is explicitly noted as being mighty in deed and word is Jesus. That is found in Luke 24, 19, if you want to write that down. Moses didn't understand how he could be used with such a vital defect in his mouth, but it is no different than the apostles. In Acts chapter 4, they're termed uneducated and untrained men, and yet they caused the Sanhedrin to marvel, noting that they had been with Jesus. Because of the lack of eloquence by Moses, and because of the lack of training in the apostles, what is the result? It is God who gets the glory. Those he selects are instruments perfectly chosen for this reason. Verse 10 goes on, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. Moses' words here literally are neither yesterday nor the day before, nor since you have spoken to your servant. He's using this ancient idiom to cover all time which has passed. His speaking has never been eloquent and it has not improved even in the Lord's presence. And he may be curious as to why. His hand was leprous and his hand was healed and yet his tongue has remained unhealed. Oh my Lord, wherefore hast thou not healed my broken tongue? He has misunderstood the purpose of his defect and he has regarded it from a human rather than a divine perspective. Rather than being a limiting factor for the task, it's actually a grace which will be realized in his continued dependency on the Lord, not on himself, for the calling and the completion of that calling. And if you think of the person, some of you may have heard of her, Johnny Erickson Tata. Girl, I think she was 17 when she dove in off of, uh, you know, into water. She broke her neck and she's paralyzed completely in her body. She can't do anything on her own, absolutely nothing. She can paint with her mouth and she can do things like that. 
but her husband has to take about three hours every day to get her ready for the day. And when she goes to bed, it takes about three hours to go to bed at night. And she has terrible bed sores that she suffers with. And yet she has done more for Jesus Christ than 99.999% of the Christians in the world today. She's been all over the world talking about Christ. She's got a wheelchair ministry for people all over the world. She's spoken at Billy Graham crusades, churches everywhere. She's tireless in a body that doesn't work. And the Lord is glorified through her actions. Verse 10 continues, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Ellicott notes that according to Jewish tradition, Moses was unable to pronounce the labials, B, F, M, P, and V. In other words, it was believed that he had something of a lisp. That was a joke. Whether it was that or not, or whether it was a, stu stu a stutter, or whether it was simply an inability to stand and make an effective oration because words came slowly to him. It caused him to be slow of mouth and slow of tongue. This defect or perceived defect is not limited to Moses, though. This man of God who would explain God's standards to the people and who would set the tone for the entire dispensation of the law is actually found to have the same limitation as that of the Apostle Paul. It is Paul who would explain God's standards to the Gentile peoples and whose letters set the tone for the entire Gentile-led church age, and yet he confirms that he lacked in the same manner as his forefather Moses. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For even if I should boast somewhere more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, speaking of Paul's letters, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Think of it, mighty in words and deeds, and yet he had contemptible speech. It is seen in the selection of both of these men that the power to speak well is not regarded as a necessary attribute for greatness. In fact, it can be deduced that both were chosen especially to avoid this perception so that the substance behind their words are to be considered above the delivery of them. And a perfect example of this, I'll give you three people. I'm not going to name two of them because I'm going to say something kind of disparaging about them. There's a beanpole in Texas that has a 30,000-person congregation. He's a great orator, and yet he never brings up the name of Jesus except when he's trying to sell a book. Okay? So is the effective oration all that matters? There's another one out in Texas. He's a big guy. He's not a beanpole. And he is probably the greatest orator I have ever heard in my life. Probably. And yet he mishandles the word of God. He stood selling a book one time and said Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And yet he's in a church as a pastor. He's, he's uh, never properly handling the word of God. If you follow his oration, you would think this is the greatest man of God in the world. And yet if you follow the substance behind his words, they're lacking. And then we have a third person, which I'm going to name, which is Adrian Rogers the Baptist minister from, I think it was Bellevue Baptist up in Nashville, Tennessee for many years. Before he died, he was just the most wonderful preacher. His voice boomed and he had effective oration, but he always brought it back to Jesus Christ and the gospel. That is what matters. And if he gave a poor oration with a good gospel message, I'd rather have that than have a good tickling ear and somebody that is not exalting the name of Jesus Christ. So don't be fooled by fancy orators, and the Lord is setting the pattern in his own prophets and apostles and his people through these examples right here. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? So the Lord said to him, it has to be remembered that the voice is issuing from a burning bush which isn't consumed. There's no discernible mouth by which the words are coming to the ears of Moses. This has to be a consideration in what's occurring. Words come from somewhere, and yet any physical source for the voice in his ears cannot be seen. And further, the voice says, Misam pe la Adam, who made the mouth of Adam. Adam is the same word as man. In that Adam was the first man, and all subsequent men are from Adam. There is the revealed truth that the man, the mouth of all men, were made by the Lord when he first created Adam. As the Lord is the existent being, then he is aware of the state of every mouth and has made his selection based on his foreknowledge, including Charlie Garrett. Here I am sitting here speaking to you, and he knew that I would be here and that you would be listening today. 
This was known to him before he created anything. And when he breathed the breath of life into Adam, Charlie Garrett was there in Adam's loins, being prepared to preach on Sunday morning at the Superior Word. In essence, he is saying, wake up, Moses. I know exactly what I'm doing. These are words of reproof. Verse 11 goes on, or who makes the mouth of the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? In this, four descriptions of man are given. The mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind. All four words are used for the very first time in the Old Testament in this one verse. Though similar descriptions have been seen in Genesis, such as Isaac's eyes being extremely dim, these four particular words have never been used. Throughout the 1,650 or so years before the flood of Noah, and for the 850 or so since then, it wasn't until the manifestation of the Lord, the existent one, in the bush, that these conditions are noted as his work. This verse, then, is what is a, it's a part of what is known as progressive revelation. God slowly reveals himself to his people, eventually coming to the pages of the Bible. Although it may have been understood that the Lord made the mute, not until this moment has it been explicitly revealed to be the case. It is a note of his sovereignty over all of the afflictions of all mankind, both created afflictions and inherited afflictions, and that these come about for his purposes. Every sense that we possess and the perfection or the imperfection associated with those senses are according to his will and his good pur purposes. It is also further implied that the remedy to the imperfections are according to his will as well, whether supernaturally or whether we are selected to be born at a time in human history when a cure is attainable through human effort. Think of a boy with a cleft palate. Maybe Jesus would have healed somebody like that back then, but it wasn't possible to heal that at his time. Now people are born with cleft palates and it can be healed through medicine. And God chose when those people would be born with that particular affliction. He knew all of this in advance. It is God who controls the entire process, whether miracle or whether medicine. Verse 12, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. The commission is repeated. Now therefore go. You have no need to worry, nothing to be embarrassed about, and no limitations that will overcome you. Instead, the Lord promises, I will be with your mouth. And this is a portion of the divine proclamation. I am that I am. That word that he says, I will be. I am is speaking to Moses and he confirms that he will be with his mouth. If I am is, then I am will. It is a complete and absolute assurance that cannot fail. In his presence, he will teach. The sentiment is perfectly represented in the Lord's words to the apostles in Matthew chapter 10, where it says this, you will be brought before governors and, for king, and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. So we have an Old Testament example and a New Testament example confirmed in Christ. And the word for teach here that he's using for Moses is the Hebrew word yara. It properly means to flow as water, such as raining or pouring. Transitively, it means to throw or to shoot like an arrow. And figuratively, it means to point out as if one is pointing their finger. One learns by experience and by observation. In this, Moses has all of the assurance that I am will be with him and that I am will provide all that is necessary to accomplish this task which is set before him. There is only absolute assurance and what has spoken will, in fact, come to pass. He will be directed like water. He will be directed like an arrow that's being shot or he will be directed like a finger that's pointing. That's why that word is so important. It's showing us that we learn by these type of examples. This assurance is seen again in a young man of Israel who was destined to face many hardships as a prophet of God. His commission is seen at the very beginning of the book which bears his name. And listen to this. This is from the book of Jeremiah. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I, you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, 
for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Sounds like Moses, doesn't it? Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. It seemed that the lesson to Moses is a lesson which needs to be repeated time and time again. It is therefore a lesson that all of us need to remember as well. We each have a commission and the Lord will be with us in it and fulfill it through us. The Lord created man in his image and he did it well. And he still directs our state even since we fell. He makes some men with eyes clear and bright. He makes others eyes dim even as the darkest night. He makes one man the gentle breeze to easily hear and others he makes so that even loud bells are not clear. But in all states, he can use us for his glory. Those who are lame can open their mouth and speak. And even the slow of speech can tell the gospel story. He can open deaf ears and strengthen hands so weak. Our second thought is Aaron the Levite, verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. The exact meaning of these words in the Hebrew is actually very difficult to determine. Ellicott sees them as, he says, a curt impatient and scarcely reverent speech. Moses means that he will undertake the task if God insists, but that God would do far better to send another. Ellicott sees Moses as equivocating. In other words, I will do it if necessary, but it really isn't necessary because. Another thought which may be realized in Moses' words here is exceptional. He says, Selah na beyad tisla. Send, I pray, by the hand you will send. Because of the future tense, it could actually be a reference to the Messiah. Oh Lord, I'm not the Messiah. Send the Messiah. And this very well may be the case, but Moses didn't realize that the Messiah would save more than just the covenant people Israel. And in order to do so, he himself would be used to picture this greater work of Christ. Whatever Moses was actually thinking, the words have set an inappropriate tone because of the assurances which have already been given. He has been selected. The name, the divine name of Jehovah has been revealed. The signs have been given and the assurances have been granted. And because of what has become an overly diffident attitude, the response of the Lord is much more than understandable. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This Hebrew expression can go from strong displeasure all the way to being extremely angry. Whatever the level of emotion, there would have been an accompanying change in the level of the voice. And we know this because it is Moses who penned the account for us to read. For him to tell us that the anger of the Lord was kindled means that he could perceive that this was the case. We can look in surprise at the man who would speak to the Lord of creation in the way that he's spoken, but we must surely also look in surprise that he honestly and he openly recorded every single detail of it. The Spirit of God was upon him as he wrote, directing his words, but they are still his words as well. He faithfully recorded his own faults for us to see and to learn from. Verse 14 continues, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? Anybody? Isn't that odd? This is the very first time that Aaron is mentioned in the entire Bible. In all, he will be named 112 times in the book of Exodus, more than any other book in the Bible. He is introduced now, which is at a time of need, while Moses is struggling from self-doubt. The words here, is not Aaron the Levite your brother, aren't intended as a question, but as an affirmative thought. It is rhetorical, and it is a preparation for more information to come. But what is curious about this term is Levite. If he is Moses' brother, then the fact that he is a Levite is obvious. It appears unnecessary and even forced to include this distinction. However, the inclusion follows the words of Exodus 2, verse 1, which was the last time that the tribe of Levi was mentioned. There it said, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. That was a preemptory statement to show that Levi would become the center of the biblical story. And sure enough, the entire story began to revolve around Moses, a son of Levi. What seemed unnecessary was actually a hint of the story to come. The same appears to be true with including the designation when introducing Aaron. It very possibly may be somewhat a veiled confirmation of Moses' request to send the Messiah. Although preemptory in nature, the inclusion of the term Levite seems to be a hint that Israel would be given a law before the coming of the Messiah. If there will be a law, then there must be stewards of the law. 
At this point in time, the Levites had not yet been chosen to be those stewards, but in God's mind, they had. And if there was to be a law at the coming of the Messiah, then it showed that there would be a law which was incapable of saving the people. Otherwise, there would be no need for the Messiah to come. If the law could save, we wouldn't need a Messiah. This is explained in detail in Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. In other words, the inclusion of the term Levite, where it seems completely unnecessary, is to show that God's plan has been meticulously constructed and is progressively being revealed with accompanying hints along the way as to what would happen, through whom it would occur, and how it would come about. It, like all of the many pictures of redemptive history, gives us delightful tastes of the wisdom of God as it is ultimately revealed in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. What is veiled in these pictures is perfectly represented and realized in him. Verse 14 continues, I know that he can speak well. The Hebrew literally reads, Yadati ki daber yedaber hu. I know that in speaking will speak he. The word well, used by translators, is inserted, and the he is emphatic. Again, I know that in speaking will speak he. It is a rebuke, an overall rebuke to Moses. I know. I am the Lord. I have all knowledge. What I know is fully known. That, this particular point, is something I know with absolute certainty. In speaking will speak. The words will come freely, and they will come without reservation. They will pour out like water. There will be no withholding, but instead there will be proclaiming. He, he will speak. The job you have been willing to accept, unwilling to accept, he will do with zeal. Moses has just been upbraided for his unwillingness to fully accept his commission. And yet, at the same time, he's been given grace by receiving not just a spokesman, but his own brother. As Matthew Henry says about this union, he says, the tongue of Aaron with the head and heart of Moses would make one completely fit for this errand. God promises, I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth. Even Aaron, who could speak well, yet could not speak to purpose, unless God gave constant teaching and help. For without the constant aid of divine grace, the best gifts will fail. If nothing else comes to your ears today from today's verses, the truth of free will surely must. God, knowing in advance of the replies of Moses, still allowed him to give the replies. And in his foreknowledge of Moses' perceived limitations, he graciously accommodated them rather than forcing his will on him or simply healing his mouth. And even more, through the exercise of his free will and through God's foreknown accommodation of it, a team is organized that will accomplish all of God's purposes exactly as they were intended to come about even before the creation itself. Benson comments on this union. He says this, Moses excelled in wisdom and conduct, Aaron in eloquence, such is the wise order of providence. As in the human body, each member has its different use and function, all are ministering to the good of the whole. So in the mystical body of Christ, God has dispensed different gifts to different members, and very seldom, if ever, does he give all accomplishments to one but to preserve a mutual dependence in relation, he distributes some to one and some to others. When Vic started attending the church here, after about two weeks, he came up to me and he said, man, this is almost a one-man show. He says, you seem to do everything here. And I said, well, eventually people will start taking other jobs. And sure enough, we got Jim out there doing the camera. We got, at times, people bring in the num-nums and Paul comes up and he starts things out. And slowly but surely, people give me ideas for music. And someday somebody will take over the music or we'll get a musician in here. Whatever. But that is what God does. He doesn't want anything to be a one-man show. And he shows us this in the two-by-twos all the way through the Bible and sometimes threes. Is that we are interdependent on each other. And without each other, we cannot survive. It's a necessary lesson for us to remember in our church life, in our home life, and in our business life as well. No one can carry out every task, and God has given us one another in order to complement each other. Every person has something that they can do without doing all of it. So what is your role that you're filling here in the church? What is the role that you're filling in the family? And what is the role that you are fulfilling at work? You should have one for each of them, and if not, then you are not working out your potential as you should. Verse 14 continues, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. 
When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Aaron is the elder of the two, okay? He's 83, Moses is 80. With these words from the Lord, the meeting between the two brothers may have been awkward or even strained. Should Moses defer to Aaron as the elder, even though he's received the commission? Should he mention that he's going to hold the superior office? Will there be resentment? Will there be animosity? Will there be disbelief? The Lord has preempted all such worries by showing once again his foreknowledge of the events which lie ahead. When the two meet, Aaron will be glad in his heart, he says. To the Hebrew, this term, belivo, or in his heart, means much more than an emotional assent of the mind. Or, I'm sorry, emotional assent, uh, assent, as if someone is just rejoicing in their heart. It is also an assent of the mind as well. The heart in the Bible is synonymous with the seat of understanding. Aaron won't just be pleased to see Moses. He will make the mental assertion that Moses' selection as the principal in the task ahead is the correct choice. It is your choice when I have given you. My word is written and its intent is clear. What path will you follow? What will you choose to do? Will you turn away or obediently will you hear? All things are possible for one who has sound faith, but for he who lacks it, others can join and help too. And together you can do what my word saith. Just work together and trust that my word is true. I will be with you until the very end, and all that I purpose will come about as planned. In times of need, my grace I will extend, and to you I shall reach out my comforting, guiding hand. Our third and final thought is the dynamic duo, verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. Moses is in the mediatory position between the Lord and man. When an oracle is received, it will be through him. From there, the words will be his, but the choice of wording will be that of Aaron. The will of God, expressed in a concrete manner through his mediator, will be articulated with eloquence through his appointed orator. Now, I don't want to stretch the meaning or interpretation of this verse too far, but the process which is laid out here is strikingly similar to that of the Trinity. The will of God the Father is expressed in a concrete manner through his mediator, Jesus. And this mediator's duties will be articulated with eloquence through his orator, the Holy Spirit. This process, exactly as noted, is laid out exactly in verses of the New Testament. In the case of Moses and Aaron now, though, a man of ideas coupled with a man of eloquence who are performing the will of God will produce a most formidable team to contend with and against which none shall prevail. Verse 15 continues, And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. Again, the word aye, or will be, is used. I am, will be. What greater guarantee is to be found in heaven or on earth? None. The surety of the word spoken now will carry Moses through another 40 years of his life. With but a few prominently noted failings, Moses will trust I am implicitly until the time of his rest finally comes. The Lord has given the guarantee that he will be with the mouth of Moses and with the mouth of Aaron for instruction in the imparting of his will for the good of the people of Israel. As Henry noted earlier, without the constant aids of divine grace, the best gifts will fail. In the case of Moses and Aaron, the Lord's grace will be provided throughout the task which is set before them. Verse 16, so he shall be your spokesman to the people. The order here for Aaron will continue on during all of the time of the law, which is about 1,500 years. Aaron will become Israel's first high priest, and one of his sons will follow him until the time of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The high priest would be the one to mediate between God and the people in priestly matters. At the outset of his duties, the difference is that he would mediate between Moses and the people. It is a time of preparation for the priestly duties to come after the exodus from Egypt. However, as Moses is considered Israel's lawgiver, the role will actually continue on as is directed right here until the ending of the law at the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 continues, And he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And what is somewhat unusual rendering of words here, the verb is repeated for emphasis. It's kind of unusual in the Hebrew. It says, and shall be he, shall be to you a mouth. It is a way of saying that with all certainty that Aaron will be the one to speak for Moses. And in turn, the Lord tells him that he would be to Aaron as God. This doesn't mean that Moses would be as God in actuality. 
but in divine inspiration. Because his words will be from the direct influence of the Lord, to Aaron, they will carry that same weight and authority. And I want you to understand this. This is a precept which is actually comparable one-to-one with the Bible itself. And don't, don't forget this when you're talking to people who diminish the pages of the Bible. Because the Bible is of divine origin, it carries the same weight and authority of the words issuing from the burning bush. This is the reason why it is the most important task of any man ever to properly handle and to rightly divide the word of God. And it is the reason why James says this in his epistle. Listen, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. The authors of the Constitution of the state of Tennessee understood this precept. And they entered this, listen to this, they entered this into Article 9, that of disqualifications of the Tennessee State Constitution. And this is still on their books today. Whereas ministers of the gospel are by their profession dedicated to God in the care of souls and ought not to be diverted from the great duties of their functions, therefore, no minister of the gospel or priest of any denomination, whatever, shall be eligible to a seat in either house of the legislature. That's from the Tennessee Constitution, Article 9, Disqualifications, Section 1. When they authored that constitution in the state of Tennessee, they held this in such high reverence and the people that preached it that they say we will not allow them to be taken from their duties to serve in the legislature. Imagine how the mighty have fallen. You want to know who else isn't allowed to enter into the legislature in the state of Tennessee? One other group, atheists. They're morally unqualified, and that's on their books right now in the state constitution. Morally unqualified. Anybody that denies the supreme being. It's that important. This book is that important. In order to keep from having their attention directed from their awesome duties before the Lord, they were prohibited from holding public office in the legislature. The sacredness of scripture is implied in the verses that we're seeing right now spoken to Moses by the Lord. That which is of divine origin is to be spoken to the people on behalf of the Lord with eloquent care. Verse 17 finishes with these words. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. This section ends kind of curiously, doesn't it? The importance of the rod is highlighted and it's being mentioned once again. The rod itself is being tied into the signs to come. Only one sign was given earlier concerning the rod, that of the rod being turned into a snake. However, the rod is to be used for much more than that one sign. And more, they are not just given any signs as the King James Version implies. They translate this verse by saying, wherewith thou shalt do signs. But there's a definite article in front of the word signs. It says, ha otot, the signs. They are definite and they are multiple. The signs which issue from the rod are highlighted at the end of this most important passage as a reminder that it is the work of the Lord which will accomplish all that occurs. In verse 20, this rod will be called the rod of God. It is to be a continual reminder that the Lord is always there at Moses' right hand in power and for punishment. In fact, in Numbers 20, Moses will forget this, and he's going to use this rod in a manner which is contrary to the word of the Lord. And as a result, he will be banned from entering into the promised land. Instead, he will die and be buried in the fields of Moab. The rod of God here is a picture of Christ's power to rule and to affect his purposes among his people for his people, and over his enemies. The rod and the associated miracles will now be used by Moses in this fashion, and they will picture the greater work of the Lord coming in the end times. This was prophesied by David in the 110th Psalm, where he uses the same word for rod, mate, to show us what is coming, maybe someday rather soon. Listen to this. I think this is coming probably in our lifetime and probably very soon in our lifetime. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enem enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod, the mate of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In other words, Christ is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, ruling the nations of the world. And that's coming soon to a theater near you. For Moses, the shepherd's rod has become the rod of God. And so it is with Christ our shepherd and our God. It is to this all-powerful, all-knowing, and infinitely gracious Lord that our allegiance is due. With him on our side, nothing in heaven or earth can separate us from God's love. But without him, 
Nothing else can reconcile us to God and make us objects of his love. We must come to God through Christ. He said that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. If you have never committed to God through the shed blood of Christ's cross, please give me just another moment to explain this to you very quickly. The Bible says that we have sinned. We have all sinned. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. We're heading to a box that's longer than it is wide because we will end our life in the sin that we have earned in this life. But more importantly than this physical death is the spiritual death, which we suffered at the fall of Adam. And it's an inherited death that all people have. We are spiritually disconnected from God because of the sin in our human nature. And Christ came to correct that. He came to redeem us from that state and to give us eternal life. He came and he fulfilled the law. He never sinned during that process. And more important, which I skipped over, he was born without sin, being born of God the Father. So he didn't inherit Adam's sin. He fulfilled that law. He gave his life up on a cross. And the Bible says that if we will trust that what God has done in his son, dying on that cross is sufficient, that he will take our sin and he'll nail it to the cross of Calvary. It'll be gone forever. Into the grave we go with Christ and out of the grave we come because the wages of sin is death and he had no sin of his own. So death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. And therefore, if our sins are nailed to his cross, it is impossible for death to hold us. You watch these old war movies, you know, World War II movies and Civil War movies, and always they show when somebody's being buried, they say in the hope of the resurrection of Christ. They don't say that kind of stuff anymore in movies. But I tell you what, people understood in those movies at that time that they were filming those things that there is hope in Jesus Christ. It seems to be a passe thought to the world now. Oh, there's no hope except in global warming. We got to save the world from ourselves. It's all nonsense. There is only hope in Jesus Christ. And it's nowhere else. It is nowhere else. And we have, when we call on Christ, the absolute assurance that is our hope that we will come out of the grave because of him. So if you've never taken a moment to just ask him to cleanse you of your sins, do so today. Call on him. Okay? He will forgive you and he will give you that eternal life. That is your great hope. Our closing verse today comes from Proverbs 3. It's verses 5 and 6. Kind of think about Moses here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Something he hasn't been doing to this point, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Insert Moses' name there. Insert your name there. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Okay? Insert your name there. Charlie Garrett, you need to acknowledge him in all ways and he shall direct your paths. And I need to remind myself of that continuously. And I'm sure you do too, so do it. Next week is Exodus 4. It's verses 18 through 23. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Our 12th Exodus sermon. And I assure you, you won't be here, but you can watch it on YouTube. Or you know what? You may be able to watch it streaming online. Hey, I don't know. You can try it out, but I, I, you will see the beginning of the adoption of the people of Israel and what it all means and does it still apply today or is it over? Has the church replaced Israel or have they not? We'll see the, imp the, the, the infancy of this concept right here. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is entitled, Filling Life's Gaps. Then Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since the word you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. No one ever enjoyed a song that I have sung. So the Lord said to him a piece of his mind, Who has made man's mouth? Tell me in a word. Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I? Who else but the Lord? Now, therefore, go, okay? And I will, with your mouth shall be, and will teach you what to say. It will be fine, Moses, as you shall see. But he said, oh, my Lord, please, my word, attend. Send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well for you instead. And look, he is also coming out you to meet. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. The reunion will be sweet. Now you shall speak to him, so shall you do. 
and put the words in his mouth as I instruct you. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth too. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your smoke spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you. And you shall be to him as God. Everything will work out as it is supposed to. And when you take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs, by them all will come to understand of my purposes and my designs. Moses lacked faith in the plan given to him by the Lord, but the Lord knew this would be the case. And so the account is written in the word to give us courage in the trials that we will face. We can't know, we can know that we don't have to carry the load alone. Instead, God has given us others to pick up the slack. We can send them an email or call them on the phone and know that with their help, we will be on track. We are not left as orphans and the Lord is there with us. And we have faithful family and friends to help us out as well. Together, we can redirect each other to the Lord Jesus and of his sure promises one another we can tell. Thank you for this great assurance which, in which we stroll. Thank you, Lord. We know you have it all under control. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious word. Thank you that we have a chance to get into it and to analyze it and to uh, uh, develop our, our personal understanding of you in a better way each week. And uh, we do thank you that we can do that following the prophecy update because there's so many things that are a downer in this world that if that's all we came here to do, we'd be in a state of depression when we left. But then we can get into your word and we can correlate the two things together. And we can see that despite the fact that the world is falling apart, you have your hand on everything that's happened. You made the seeing and the blind, the deaf and the mute, and you made them for your purposes. And you've placed each one of us in the perfect position in time, in place, and in position so that we can seek after you and hopefully reach out for you and call to you and to be saved through the precious blood of your son. Thank you for that. Thank you for the healing you've done in Mabel today. And we pray for uh, the other people that are having troubles and trials, Art in the hospital and Jim's foot and Darla's friend who's facing surgery this week and any other burden that we're facing. Lord, be with us be with them. Help us to uh, just lift our eyes to you and to trust in you and know that whatever is happening, it's happening because you ordained it and to give us that ability to overcome those things in our mind, knowing that we have a greater and more wonderful shore that we will stand on someday in your presence. We love you. We praise you and we exalt you. We look forward to the communion, the table of the Lord here in just a moment. And we want to give you uh, just uh, all of our heart today. We want to give it to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over this bread in these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come to your table, to share in the memorial of Christ's cross, his death, until he comes again. And may that day be soon. We, we all long for it here, and we do pray that it'll be soon. But thine will be done in all things. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.